0: This is writer and game designer Robin D. Laws. And this is game designer and writer Kenneth Height. And this is our podcast, Ken and Robin Talk About Stuff. Bandwidth brought to you by Paul grain Press. Stuff we're here to talk about
1: in this episode include... Playtesting past the designer's GM skill. The Beatle. Choosing projects.
0: And Vladimir Ilyich Yulianov Mushroom. Ken, do you know anything about kitties?
1: I might.
0: But do you know about magical kitties?
1: I know everything. Everything about Magical Kitties Save the Day, a new RPG for gamers of all ages. But you know young ones in particular. A perfect intro to the hobby. You mean perfect? I do not. Like the title says, you're magical kitties. Every magical kitty has a human. Every human has a problem.
0: In Magical Kitties Save the Day, you use your magical powers to solve problems and
1: save the day! You all live in a hometown that's filled with foes, like witches, aliens, and hyper-intelligent raccoons. They make human
0: problems worse, so the kitties go on adventures to stop them and help the humans.
1: The super simple but elegant rule system puts the emphasis on storytelling and puts the dice in the players' hands, not the GM's. And it supports a setting and characters that players are familiar with and love from the start. When you open the box for Magical Kitties Save the Day, sitting right on top is a copy of Magical Kitties and the Big Adventure.
0: A soul- play graphic novel adventure
1: within moments of opening it kiddos can create their magical kitty and go on an amazing adventure that also teaches them how to play the game
0: run magical kitties save the day for kids as young
1: as six years old and for everyone else who loves kitties
0: a great game for kids to start running on their own with plenty of tools and guidance for first-time GM
1: if you've been looking for a way to introduce your friends and family to role-playing games
0: magical kitties save the day is the perfect game to do it do you mean perfect I also do not Pick up your copy at atlas-games.com. You are cute. You are cunning. You are fierce. You are magical kitties, and it's time to save the day.
1: The rattle of dice, the thump of miniatures, the crunch of Doritos, and the benevolent gaze of Peter Frampton coming alive. Welcome us once more into the gaming hut, and here in the gaming hut. Well, will you look at that? There's uh, some sort of an MP3 player. There's a copy of uh, Brill's Dictionaries of Deities and Demons in the Bible. This is a very idiosyncratic gaming hut today, Robin. Perhaps (laughs) because Kieran Gillen, beloved podcast backer, kicks off an all-request episode by all-requesting... You were talking about how to separate playtest GM skill. How do you think about separating your own when running your own game in early playtests? And I want to stop right here and say, well done, Kieran. Big compliments in the question. Bobble them to the top. Say you breaking or forgetting your rules in the moment. Never mind. I take it back. How do you separate Ken and Robin game designers from Ken and Robin game masters when doing those early playtests? Robin?
0: Well, first of all, I hope this question is not meant to lure us into a horrible other world that seems like a role-playing game.
1: That would be the worst.
0: That would be the worst. So that's the whole ball of wax, right? That is the, the uh, big issue with in-house playtesting, and the reason that you then quickly go to out-of-house playtesting, <laughs> because, indeed, it isn't so much that you are such a good game master that you can make a, your crappy design seem good to you, but that as you go along, that you may fix rules on the fly and start using those when you're running it and not go back and put them in the manuscript. Or mm-hmm. more likely that you'll spot the main place they are in the manuscript but miss the other references to it, which is a proofreading and editing issue, even more than a playtesting issue. But absolutely, you are comparing your in-house test to the in-house tests you've had of other games, uh, not to the question of will people like this. Or can other people run this? Because yes, absolutely. An issue that goes back a long ways is people will say, well, there's no you in the box where you Mm -hmm. as Ken or Robin or some other designer. That's a truism that's old enough that it goes back to when we sold role-playing games in boxes. And much of your challenge is to get what you do when you're playing uh, on the page. And that's not just about making sure that your rules that you're playing are the same as the rules that you wrote down uh, in the manuscript to begin with but also a matter of providing the support for other gms uh, in order to do what you're doing sometimes specific rule support that you might not need but that others do or a specific structure that you have internalized uh, but and then have to externalize onto the page so that other people can replicate what it is that you're doing so yes absolutely that's that's a giant part of of this but also in-house testing is very frequently Not about will people like this, but just does this rule work at all? And so the things I most often discover in in house testing is nope, this doesn't work at all. You know, you have your first (laughs) fight and everybody dies. You have your Starship combat system and it takes three hours. That it's the problems with the game that you have very early on are not the same problems where you're fine tuning it and sending it to out of house testers. And they normally Rise up from the, your notes to punch you in the face so that you notice them really hard, mm-hmm. <laughs> despite whatever game master skill you may also bring to the table.: Yeah, I feel
1: like if you've done any kind of a job of alpha play testing, the basic mechanics, and you're any kind of game designer. Those are the kind of things that you do catch. It's like, oh, this was supposed to be easy to do, and the players are struggling with it, or this was supposed to be fun, and it's long and tedious, or this was supposed to be balanced, and it's a walkover. These are the sorts of things that I think, regardless of your own skill as a GM, you can pick up on. It's some of the interrelations. And obviously, no one playtest masters every single, you know, factorial combination of Player character choice and obstacle in the game. And there may be, you know, broken combos. There may be all manner of possibilities in the various builds that you just simply can't test until you have enough eyes on it. And again, this is a basically unsolved problem. If you remember, fifth edition went through something like, what was it? A year, two years of play testing with easily a thousand people playtesting it, probably uh, an order of magnitude more than that, and they still had like a 55-page errata sheet after the first six months of actual game release. So it's just, there is no amount of playtesting because the games themselves are so infinitely mutable and fungible and messable with, even sticking to the rules as written, that the best you can do is to hope that most of the edge cases are on the edge, not Still, right in the middle of everybody's play, right, right,
0: and there's levels of things that you're testing in a, especially in a, a crunchier game like D&D. So there's, does the core resolution system work? And by the time that gets, you know, out of the designer's own circle, it presumably does. But does it work in a way that is comprehensible to others? You know, again, that's the issue of did you put what's happening at the table on the page? Right, uh, and then there's the overlayer of that, which is all of the crunchy bits. So uh, the more spells and feats and magic items that you have in the game, the, that magnifies the possibility that one of the descriptions of one of those crunchy bits will, A, not make sense anymore due to, to an editing issue, B, refer back to earlier rules that were fixed but that wasn't fixed in that part, or C, just be too hosy. And it just happened that the number of playtesters you had, whether it was 80 Or 800, nobody used that combo in play. And so that's, you know, that's all part of quality control. And as you suggest, that's why unfortunately the, the demon of errata continues to plague us. Another thing that you do discover in in in-house testing that is invaluable, that is partly, I guess, an issue of your GMing style is that when you play it, your players will say, well, can I do this? And it may may be that your rule is like, well, no, I just, in this game, you don't do that. And the players would go, Really? Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so that may be a thing where you're, you know, the, the, you, the designer, is being schooled by you, the GM, because you're being in turn schooled by the players. Yeah. So that's a, another thing that you have to look for. So the, the, the real answer is that if you are mostly, re- if a designer is mostly relying on their own, Playtesting, and they may be going from convention to convention, playing it and running it with other people. And I, I don't want to think, Ken, that anyone in the world has ever done this or thought this. But maybe uh, there are instances where people have mostly just run it themselves and think that the game works on that basis. And again, that's that's the whole pile of boxes. That's that's why you have out of house testing. So you have to know the limitations of in house testing and know that it's only stage one. It's just. In-house testing is just getting it to not be completely broken immediately when out-of-house testers then tackle it. I know cases where people sent completely broken games out to out-of-house testers and they wasted their time and everyone I, else's. I, I know
1: cases where they sent them out to the publisher. I mean, <laughs> while we're talking. But yeah. I, I think you made an interesting point or you slid by one, which is that in my you know, in my opinion, anyway, and in my practice, I try to I don't want to design a game that I can't run at the table with my group the way that I run games. I'm literally designing games the way that I would run them because, you know, you think it's hard to put me in the box. Imagine how hard it is for me to put the imaginary GM I wrote the game for in the box. I mean, he's even harder because he doesn't exist.
0: (laughs) (laughs) So his non-existence makes him fit in the box. That is one point in his favor.
1: I mean, I'm not saying there's no savings, but anyway. But if I'm running a game that I've uh, tested, you know, for example, Vampire or Night's Black Agents, and I'm running the game and the player says, I want to do this. And I look and I say, well, the rules say you can't do that. That is the rule being wrong because... My constant instinct as a GM is to say, Oh, please get yourself into more trouble. I'm, I'm alive to see this possibility. And so that's the other sort of job of in-house testing is to let Ken Game Master overrule Ken Game Designer because Ken Game Master comes back and says, no one likes not being able to do the archery that way. They think that's not as fun. And that's literally the point of playtesting. And if I can succeed, in, you know, sort of explicating a way to play. And I think that, you know, you do that to a lesser or greater degree in some games. I think that with newer systems, you know, it's maybe incumbent on you to explicate it more and harder the way that you did in drama system or the way that Vincent did in Vincent Baker did in uh, Powered by the Apocalypse to sort of say, these are best practices from my GMing that I have used and I urge you to use them. You know, you can't put you in the box, but maybe you could put a, a golem or a robot or a, or an AI of you in the box, at least in the words in the GMing advice chapter, because not putting that part of you in the box is it's not quite as bad as shipping a broken mechanic, but it's still, you know, you, you've, you know, you, you've shipped a, a wonderful thing that no one can get into or that they have to luck into right. go that extra mile. And part of what the playtesting is doing is attempting to codify the aspect of ken game master or designer the game master that is useful and comes to life and is propulsive for this game the the best part of you as a gm because obviously we gm different games differently but if you're doing a new game that you've developed you know pay a lot of attention to things that were friction causers at the table because again that's literally the point of the playtest for me
0: yes and and that's a such a huge point that I'm just going to essentially repeat it. <laughs> <But> <laughs> Fantastic. A big part of when you're writing the manuscript is not just about finding out whether your resolution system works, but observing what you are doing in play to make it work and then putting that in the GM advice. And so uh, Feng Shui is a huge example of that, where the thing that people remember about the original version of that is the GM advice and the way that it you know, authorized... You to authorize the players to add descriptions of the physical environment in play, which at that time was a shocking, weird thing to do. So that the play dynamic that you're trying to create is the thing that you are observing yourself doing. And the part where you put yourself in the box, as it were, is the GM chapter. So that your good qualities of GM are not a thing to cancel out when looking at the uh, experience, but rather a thing to observe yourself doing and put as much as possible in the book. Now, The question of how to get people to actually read and use the GM advice and to shift up their own GM styles from one game to another is another one. And I think the secret there is to just, you just write a really fun, engaging GM chapter. Yeah. And because it's something that, you know, obviously I've managed to do over the years, uh, Feng Shui, of course, being the big example. And the, the thing that you're really trying to get onto the page in addition to making sure that when you change the rules at the table or when you skip rules at the table, that you are addressing that in the, in the manuscript as well. But the real challenge is is to put yourself into that GM chapter and get people to read and follow it.
1: And uh, I, I guess what we've done, Robin, is we've uh, worked ourselves all the way around to uh, premise rejecting uh, Kieran's question. So not only do we reject The notion of going into a bizarre fantasy world and uh being tortured based on our personal failings but we've also rejected the premise and as you know robin when we reject the premise there's no more to be said on this topic
0: oh well if if this segment were still going i would reject the notion that we rejected the premise but too late for that too late for that
1: Dracula is not a novel. We know this. It's the after-action report of a failed British intelligence attempt... To
0: recruit a vampire, yeah, yeah, we've been through
1: all this. And the Dracula Dossier Director's Handbook has more secrets, more dangers, more mysteries.
0: For players and directors to explore together, we did a year's worth of ads about it. But it doesn't have Varna. It doesn't have the Ring of Dracula either, or 13th Age-style icons, or bibliomancy.
1: Or a Hand of Glory, or Red Mercury, or hard-won advice and actual Play reports.
0: If only someone could gather up all that material that you and Gareth wrote after the fact.
1: Someone has. You made Gar do it, didn't you? We've assembled. Gar has assembled. The cuttings from the dossier have been assembled into a 50-page PDF. Available free with a special offer from the
0: Pell Store.
1: Just buy a print copy of the Director's Handbook Standalone. Or the Dracula
0: Dossier Core Bundle, the Director's Handbook and Dracula Unredacted in print.
1: Or the Dracula Dossier Starter Kit Bundle, the Knight's Black Agent's Core Book, the Director's Handbook and Dracula Unredacted in print. Get
0: 25% off any of those print bundles, plus the PDF versions and the cuttings from the Dossier PDF, entirely free with the code VAMP2021.
1: And don't worry, original Kickstarter backers, the cuttings PDF will mystically appear in your Pell store bookshelves without further expenditure.
0: Do nothing, Kickstarter backers.
1: All others use code VAMP2021 for plenty of savings and lots of cuttings.
0: It's time once more to put on our comfy slippers, slip on our cashmere robes, and sit down in our favorite reading chair, where we'll draw from the vast volume of uh, books on our shelves the book that is the subject of this here book hut. And this time around, estimable Patreon backer Bruce Miller would like to know about Richard Marsh's The Beetle. And uh, uh, Ken, I accidentally forced you to read this book by asking if you had read it, and by the time I got back to you, you already had. Uh, so I have to confess that I have only read a little bit of The Beatle, enough to realize that it was not keeping me on the page. But Ken, you persevered and uh, therefore can tell us all about this book, which was written at re- the same time as uh, Stoker's Dracula. And for 20 years, outsold it. And uh, I have to say I did not get far enough into it to understand why The Beatle was more popular than Dracula for uh, such a long time, but you're about to tell us.
1: I don't know if I can say why it's more popular than Dracula, because I think that my tolerance for Victorian prose is maybe a little higher than yours for whatever reason.
0: Almost certainly.
1: Almost certainly. I was also, uh, you know, reading it sort of on, not just on your say-so, but also because it is one of the sort of classic Victorian monsters, and it has dropped off, you know, kind of the, cultural radar so i felt well if you got a hidden monster that's probably worth reading just you know for personal growth and development reasons
0: the fact that he's public domain has nothing to do with that
1: and then for my personal level of interest i found that first chapter to be very weird and compelling and messed up in a lot of very fun ways to me it may have been the second or third
0: chapter where i fell out it does have a cool opening
1: I, i guess we should start by saying uh, rather than jumping into literary criticism, is that The Beatle is written by a guy named Richard Marsh. Richard Marsh is a pseudonym for uh, Richard Bernard Heldman. Richard Marsh's grandson is Robert Aikman, one of the greatest horror writers or strange story writers, as he would call himself, of the last century. And uh, Heldman adopted the pseudonym of Richard Marsh, Shortly after being fired from a boys magazine called Union Jack for kiting checks, he'd gone over to France and had, uh, you know, signed his name to checks that were not his and was arrested. And that is not the sort of behavior you want to see in the editor of a boys magazine. So off he goes. So he has to change his name and that's why he's Richard Marsh. And then he's, you know, a, I don't want to say a gifted writer, but I will say a steady writer and he writes and writes and sure enough, his fifth novel, The Beatle, bangs in and takes off. And uh, he writes across all kinds of genres, just like a lot of uh, writers of the period did. The Beatle is definitely his weirdest, most messed up book, and probably his best. I haven't read all of them, but I, I can't imagine that, you know, the novel where someone turns into an idol, The Joss, a reversion, is actually very good. Um, And then, you know, Uh, You see a title like Violet Forster's Lover, and unless you know Violet Forster, you have no interest in that book. So, I don't know. I'm just going to say that I found the various voices of the Beatle, because it is written in several different narrative voices, um, to be actually kind of interesting. And by the time I got tired of one of the voices, they he changed the voice. It's not a very long novel, and he does, I think, a pretty adequate job of Capturing four different characters, sort of revealing the same story. So there's the little puzzle element, and then there's the fact that I, I think I called out in my consume media review that he leaves everything you actually want to know completely unexplained, and sort of, you know, uh explains in quotes the mystery part of it. So that yes, you sort of, yeah, all right, you know that the beetle was hiding in such and such so, a place. So I guess
0: at this point, Ken, we, we're long overdue in actually providing a. Plot synopsis.
1: All right, uh, plot synopsis. There is a shape shifting, gender shifting, species shifting, maybe immortal, maybe not, Egyptian sorcerer or sorceress, and that is a big part of it. Who is in London and has a mad on for the uh, member of Parliament, rising liberal star, Paul Lessingham. And uh the the Beetle, the titular beetle, doesn't like Paul Lessingham and is trying to destroy him. And uh the various characters are just some rando stranger that the Beetle plucks off a street, then Paul Lessingham's rival for the hand of the beauteous Marjorie Linden, who is, it turns out, also building poison gas for the army, so that's fun. Uh then Marjorie Linden herself, with a very Mina Murray new woman type of an attitude, and then finally the grown-ups show up. And a proper detective comes in of noble blood, I point out, Augustus Champnell, and he sort of solves the problem and, and lays it out and takes command of this uh, anti beetle activity that, that's going on. And sure enough, I don't want to spoil it, but it's a novel from 1897, so I think we all know that Marjorie Linden and Paul Lessingham uh, will, in fact, marry, although they do not live happily ever after because... They have a terrifying paranoia of Beatles ever after. So the beetle is, you know, it's it's just this weird, unknowable, deliberately uncanny blob at the center of the novel that literally just exists to be everything a Victorian audience would go at. <laughs> and it's all piled on right there. At no point is there ever a, you know, pump the break moment for Richard Marsh. Uh, where he's, you know, even Dracula is, I think, portrayed more sympathetically by Stoker than the Beatle is by Marsh, although on the basic, you know, sort of facts of the on the ground, the Beatle actually has a better reason for messing with Lessingham than Dracula has with the Harkers. So it's just uh It's just, you know, all a matter of how how the story is told, I guess.
0: Well, I guess creepy uh, bugs are less sympathetic than creepy bats.
1: Maybe. Or he, you know, went well out of his way to make the beetle the creepy other in a way that even Dracula is not. And I I guess part of that is that, you know, it it may just be that Stoker was less aware of the sexual subtext. So it turns out that his sexual subtext is more enticing <laughs> and Marsh is trying to creep you out with his sexual subtext. So he deliberately makes it less enticing. Maybe that's it. I don't know. It's just a, there's a lot going on in the beetle. I, I think it rewards uh, reading, assuming that you can get your uh, head through it. And it's not, as I say, it's not long. You're not even talking the moonstone level of long. It just, uh you know, It bounces along pretty nicely. I burned through it in an evening, so it's not that bad.
0: So how do we incorporate this into role playing?
1: Well, I mean, first of all, this notion of a secret cult of ISIS worshiping sorcerers that either has survived in that the individual sorcerers have survived by constantly reincarnating into beetles and then being, you know, using their sorcery to turn themselves back into people. Or that the cult's beliefs have survived. I mean, that right there—that's a strong narrative hook. I mean, it's the it's the bad guys in the novel. Bad guys always make a great thing to add to the game. Right, Certainly, and if they're
0: eternally reincarnating, they're in whatever period you want to put them
1: in. Exactly, Um and you can have beetles—you know, kind of anywhere. Uh, these are sort of scarab beetles. They're they're described as scarabs, but the specific the specific species in science is one of the things that is left very. Elighted um, in that they're bigger than an, a scared beetle ever is, for one thing. So, so the, the, the you know, the shape shifting, gender switching, species shifting bad guy is also someone who can show up in basically, or bad girl, I should say, uh, can show up in virtually any sort of story because it's, you don't really have to customize. The uh, environment for the for a a fluid bad guy, the the beetle can ooze into basically anything as long as there is a possibility of of romance or blasphemy or uh, any kind of magic or weirdness going on. I I feel like the beetle can certainly show up there and uh, get up to stuff. I mean, I don't know that the beetle creates the sort of world that dracula even does i don't think that we could have done the beetle <laughs> dossier i i feel like we couldn't <laughs> yes. have done as many pages British of it intelligence
0: recruited the beetle and then accidentally stepped on it
1: that accident. oh god damn it so i i feel like maybe we missed a bet by not putting the beetle into the monsters section but even with the isis cult the beetle is a more hermetic novel in that it very much takes place around this one guy in london It's this one little area of London that the action just keeps going around and around in. It doesn't have the sort of scope of Dracula. And even though there's, you know, in theory, some fairly important characters, they don't really seem to be connected into the world, even to the same way that Quincy Morris or Van Helsing are. Uh, they really seem to exist only in the light of this Beatle event. Although Augustus Champnell is very obviously the kind of detective who wants to set himself up as a, as the guy in a sequel. And he may have been in the sequel. Um, Marsh did write a couple of, uh, a couple of mysteries, but I don't think that the Ditchfield Diamonds mystery has Augustus Champnell in it. So I don't know, but I feel like the universe of the Beatle is, and again, because it is so inverted or inward pointing, it's, doesn't have the same quality even as Chambers' King in Yellow mythos, which is about big changes in the world. This is about, you know, you know one angry beetle and one right. member of parliament. Right.
0: So uh, the beetle is the right period to go in the Paris section of the Yellow King role-playing game, but you'll have oh, to absolutely, alter yeah. the cosmology because the premise of uh, Yellow King is that all supernaturalism comes from Carcosa, and if there are things... From mythology or from occult traditions that are beginning to manifest and become effective that that's because the energy of Carcosa is entering the world. There is a suggestion that it has entered the world at other periods in the past, so you could say that whenever Carcosa comes into the world, the energy level rises enough for this Isis cult to again start reincarnating, so perhaps when they know the magic is dropping and the the gates to Carcosa are closing, they reincarnate into uh, beetles that go dormant and are awakened once again, once the gates reopen.
1: And it's easy enough to say that ISIS is actually Casilda, right? I mean that um, uh, the Egyptians think of her as ISIS, but she's actually Casilda and that that's what started this cult instead of the, a uh, good and sex-positive cult of ISIS. It's the weird and messed-up cult of the Beetle.
0: It, all four letters of ISIS are, are there in Casilda's name.
1: But exactly.
0: Now, does the Beetle fit in a Lovecraftian universe?
1: Um, I feel like it can. Certainly, um, you know Robert Block would uh, nod eagerly and say that it does. I, I think actually Block must have read the Beetle because some of the Egyptian mythos stories that he wrote very much recall it. Especially the sort of weird uh, sexual charge uh, that the beetle has. So I feel like certainly you could maybe say that these beetles are examples of the Coleopteran great race of Yith that have somehow physically traveled back in time or have been sent back in time through some sort of magic to prepare the way uh that uh, Egypt is obviously the most important place in the world. That's why it's got pyramids. That's why uh, Alhazred went there to learn about the Necronomicon. It's why it's where the haunter of the dark is buried, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So the great race, you know, sends their, You know, mind switching body swapping beetle forms back into the past to set up this cult. And then they basically just have to live their way back to, you know, 30 million years in the future to rejoin our side. Or maybe the reincarnation is just their minds being swapped out of the beetle bodies back into other beetle bodies in the future or back to the bodies in the distant past. And so that's sort of, you know, the, the, the background of it. I feel like definitely anything as god awful as this. The that, that central message is don't touch foreigners and ideally don't touch ladies is right down Lovecraft alley, regardless of whether or not it's a pretty uh, salutary message to give to the kids.
0: And, and as far as the esoteric slash fear itself horror mythos goes, the uh, sorcerers are drawing on the power of the outer dark. Uh, one of the premises there is that uh, human sorcerers can't do anything except summon terrible things and then obey them or get eaten by them. But in this case, you could uh, just rationalize it that, you know, that the outer dark entity takes over part of the sorcerer's consciousness. And it's not really you anymore doing all of these magical, horrible shape shifting things that in fact, it's the uh, outer dark entity who just happens to have uh, some of the memories. And in this case, the grudge of the uh, original human sorcerer who is probably, you know, that was thousands of years ago anyway, so who knows who that person was.
1: Yeah, or it could be the grudge of the sorcerer, uh, because again, the beetle has a grudge against Lessingham, so it could just be that a given sorcerer was, you know, mad at Lessingham and said, I'm going to turn into a beetle, and he meant I'm going to summon a beetle shaped demon from the outer dark that will eat me. You just didn't know that's what he meant.
0: It is in the fine print. Yeah. Look, it's like three point type. You really got to squint. Mm-hmm. Well, I think since we've uh, gone through uh, all of the horror universes that we write for, uh, unless you want to put him in Vampire.
1: <laughs> you know, uh, I'm sure he's already there. Uh, probably. 20 is. years, man. They've got everybody.
0: So look out for Beetle the Crawling coming beetle soon. Beetle the
1: Creepening coming yes. soon. Well, on
0: that note, we should creep in out of this uh, segment. And uh, uh, fly away into another. The Best of Ask the is now available at DriveThruRPG.
1: All issues of Phoenix Magazine since 2013. That's spelled F-E-N-I-X Western. How do you say "slap leather varmint" in Swedish?
0: Uh, oddly, Google Translate refuses to help
1: on that. That's the best of Astfageln on drive-through. Protect this podcast from the polymorphing menace of underfunding by joining such beloved Patreon backers as Robbie Carlton, Ruth Tillman, Steve Sigety, Chris Farrell, and Joe Webb. It's time, once again, to ask Ken and Robin. So let's ask Ken and Robin. Beloved Patreon backer Martin Runqvist asks Robin, You've designed or written for several games set in well-known worlds or genres, with large audiences, your space opera, your horror, your martial arts, your superheroes, etc. But then there are projects that seem kind of out there. Old Testament soap opera, two games based on relatively obscure Jack Vance series, and most recently, an enormous reality horror game based on five short stories by Robert W. Chambers. What were the discussions with the publisher like for that? Are these auteur works where your own personal designer brand was deemed strong enough, and I like the idea that other people deem anything, (laughs) that any wider audience familiarity with the material could be disregarded? And I think that you know, um, there's probably a general rule, but let's hear about the specific case.
0: Right. So the, the first general thing that I observe is that whenever I've tried to figure out what other people like and propose something super commercial, mostly that is not as done as well as the things where, I go, well, 100 people will like this, but they'll really like it. And it's the more abstruse things often that have uh, done fairly well. Now, sometimes that's part of the way that those deals are structured as much as anything else. And the other thing that you need to know about the role-playing biz and doing new games is that a lot of the time, you're not pitching an idea for a a new game so much as you are being asked by a publisher to do something. So a bunch of things on this list were things that someone asked me to do. So let's go back, though, to the idea that Feng Shui was an obviously commercial idea when I pitched it to uh, the original publisher when nobody had yet seen these films. It was. It's like I got a chance to kind of see them early and knew that they were going to be a big cultural wave and uh, pitch them on that basis. So this is the next new big genre that no one has covered. Like if
1: I'd had the brains to do a Bollywood game in 2000.
0: Exactly. And so that wasn't a a commercial slam dunk at the time, but it was a good pitch. And that publisher at that time was uh, happy to hear it and, and act on it. And Other things, though, that I have pitched over the years, like drama system was uh, less about pitching the the hill folk aspect of it. That was sort of a needs to be kind of a period thing where people have spears and ideally something that people haven't done a million times and won't try to turn into D&D. But that pitch was about uh, a game that would create the dramatic dynamic and the story uh, interpersonal storytelling in a way that everything else uh, mostly does action and procedural. So that was that pitch. Um, A bunch of other ones, though, the two Jack Vance games were, Simon. the the reason I work for Pelgrane is (laughs) that Simon Rogers loves Jack Vance, and he initially approached me on the recommendation of uh, someone else who uh, I had worked with to uh, design the Dying Earth for him, and then we later decided to do Guy and Reach, and that was very much Let's do this labor of love, but it happened to be a labor of love uh, even more so on the part of the publisher as uh, on my part. Now, I love Jack Vance and was delighted to to do it, but I would never have gone, here's a very commercial idea. Let's let's do this. <laughs> and the Yellow King game was an example of me just doing something that I found creatively fulfilling, which was writing a series of short stories based in that universe the new tales of the yellow sign. And then having Simon and cat look at those and saying, do a role-playing game based not just on the chamber stories, but on your stories about the the yellow King. And so that's by that time I have, you know, enough of an established audience and we know how to reach people and we knew how to package it in a way that it would really appeal to people. I somewhat underestimated how much, however, (laughs) the King in yellow is already a pre-sold setting for the group of people who play role-playing games and people were already bought into it. And so you could absolutely add the Yellow King, especially through his Mythos connection, into that first initial list of things that actually have a big audience where big is factored into it being tabletop role-playing games. Yeah,
1: they have a big audience within our little audience.
0: Right. So a, a lot of the time I'm commissioned to do things and do them, a few times I will sort of uh, pitch something out of the blue but the the thing that i've learned over the years another example is hamlet's hit points which has done very well surprisingly well that's definitely something i thought would sell 100 copies It's done significantly better than that and that was again someone seeing something that i was just kind of putting out there in that case my original blog entries that were analyzing the beats of hamlet and so uh, uh jeff tidball and will heinmarch of gameplay rights said, do you want to turn this into a book And since a lot of the blog was already written and I really wanted to have that come out, I said, sure. Yeah. And that turned out to be a big success. And that is what fed into drama system. Drama system would not exist without that process of figuring out how dramatic beats work and how they're largely absent from typical trad role-playing. And so again, it's all about, you know, following what it is that you want, because you can't, if you try to guess what other people want, Maybe you're wrong, or maybe you don't want it in the same way that they do. So, it's, I certainly have had, you know, good fortune doing things that I care about and am interested in that are maybe just require people to come a couple of steps in their direction rather than being the thing that people wanted two years ago. Because by the time you finish your project, the thing that you think people really want. That might have changed by the time you get through the development.
1: And the other thing is, if you're writing something in an area that there's already a lot of popular interest in, uh, let's say superheroes, you have a harder road to hoe because you're competing against all the other beloved superhero games for Mindspace, whereas if you're doing a game based on The Dying Earth or Robert W. Chambers, you don't have as big a competition. And I I think uh, Chambers is kind of really the sweet spot when you go and look back at it because there weren't any Yellow King games, but everyone who was of the Cthulhu bent sort of knew about the King in Yellow. So you had a thing where you had the audience sort of pre-primed that when the catalyst comes through, they all get excited in a way that you it, it simply can't do that with superheroes or, or vampires or anything that there's already tons and tons of games about. And that you really have to come up with another way to sell it besides, you know, this is, this is about that thing you like. And I think that's one of the interesting things about some of the sort of personal projects is because they are personal to you, uh, or to me or to the other designer. It's not a thing where everyone's like, well, yeah, this is basically that. This is Alien again. We we've seen Alien. We like Alien. It's one of the many Alien games. But th- this is no. We haven't seen that. We we don't actually have games based on the Book of Judges that are also HBO prestige series. That that's a that's a new thing to us. And um, you know, I know that you say that the Hillfolk setting is sort of meant to illustrate drama system, not necessarily to stand on its own. I don't know to what extent Hillfolk sells itself on the basis of the setting or on the basis of the drama system, but it, at the very least, as you say, it's a thing that people are not going to immediately try and turn into D&D and, uh, and still lets them stab someone with a sword, which is strongly satisfying.
0: Right. I wouldn't try to have a trad game version of Hillfolk. Its whole point is that yeah. it's enough within the historical ancient interests of nerddom, but, For obvious reasons, there isn't a lot of pop culture and fantasy set in that period, in that place. And so it was sort of kind of trying to bridge that gap there of being uh, familiar enough that it was within people's headspace, but not so familiar that it would lock people into what it is. Because, of course, drama system also comes with many other series pitches. So if it had been presented with a more overtly popular setting, whether that would be, you know, uh, Gar's People from D&D style races try to um, navigate politics in a big city or the Jane Austen one or uh, people would just think of it as, oh, that's the game. And so it had to be a setting that was within people's nerd interests, but not so much so that the interest in the setting would overcome their understanding of the versatility of the system. So the branding of Hillfolk slash drama system. Uh, is extraordinarily complicated yeah. in a, in a way that I haven't attempted before and wouldn't attempt since, but I can't see another way that it, that could have been, could done. Have been done. And <laughs> it worked. <laughs> yeah. You know, that is another thing where something relatively abstruse did extremely well and continues to do extremely well.
1: And, and that's, I mean, uh, of all the ones that, uh, that, that you've done, that's the one that I could see getting pushback. I don't know that Simon gave you any pushback or Kat gave you any pushback when you proposed it, because trust Robin, he will do something excellent is an excellent rule. Uh It's one I've followed virtually my whole career. But I can see there being a sort of maybe it should just be a hospital show setting or something, some degree of pushback to move it onto one or the other of the of the chairs that it is deliberately between. Uh, Was there any discussion like that? Or was it just, well, Robin knows what he's doing. March forward into the new and beautiful future. Well, it
0: it was originally uh, pitched as a much more modest thing than it wound up being. Mm -hmm. So if we'd known how well the Kickstarter was going to do, we (laughs) might have tried to do something more commercial and probably completely blown the Kickstarter. (laughs) (laughs) So once again, uh, the, the lesson there is do what interests you. I did just now talk about a bunch of gamer perceptions and how you had to fit into those. So I'm not saying completely ignore what the audience thinks or is ready for. But at the end of the day, you're looking for ways to present the thing that excites you and interests you and that uh, hasn't been done before and uh, bring those to the audience. And so, you know, that's a completely different calculus than if someone says, well, you know, the previous companies that had the Doctor Who license, well, they don't now and now we do. Uh, We would like you to do a Doctor Who game that is uh, like Doctor Who and just different enough that it's not obviously copying all the previous Doctor Who games. Do a Doctor Who game, right? That's a whole completely other uh, ball of wax with Mm an unrelated set of assumptions. And your question there as a designer is how much does it pay?
1: Yes, exactly.
0: Because that license game may well be more popular uh, or people might keep playing the previous version of the, the license, but it's not going to advance your career and if you're advancing the medium you're getting it wrong although there are cool innovative things in various extant versions of doctor who and so the the other thing that i always try to balance is you know will this be pulled from the shelves in three years when the license drops will this you know build on the other things that i've done before and and enable me to continue my explorations or are you just going to give me you know a sufficiently stupid pile of money that I would do it anyway. And you will note, I haven't done that a lot because the piles of money aren't stupid enough to just They're not it.
1: stupid enough. That's, that, I think that's a problem with piles of money generally. They're not stupid enough. They just sort of you know sit there and say, well, all right, that pays the mortgage for a while. Well,
0: role playing is getting bigger, so yeah. who knows? This, this advice may be bad in a few years. We'll see.
1: Right. I think the advice to take a stupid pile of money when offered is evergreen advice. I think that will... That'll last forever.
0: Yes. Well, except they're not being offered yet. So if yeah, they no, are, no, yeah, but <laughs> again,
1: changes the calculus. Hold yourself ready. That's all we're saying. Hold yourself ready. Um, well, I, I think that when we've had an evergreen piece of advice that can't be carried out, what better uh, note of uh, Wittgensteinian indeterminacy to go out of a segment on?
0: Delta Green Black Sites collects terrifying Delta Green operations previously published only in PDF, or in standalone paperback modules.
1: They lock bystanders and agents alike in unlit rooms with the cosmic terrors of the unnatural.
0: By masters of top-secret mythos horror, Dennis
1: Detwiller, Adam Scott Glancy, Shane Ivey, and Caleb Stokes. In PX Poker Night, discontented Air Force members listen to the night sky and hear secrets not meant for human ears.
0: In Kaligati, a Delta Green operative goes missing from
1: a combat base in the Afghanistan war. The Last Equation, a gifted university student guns down a family of total strangers, leaving behind a string of numbers that fills Delta Green's researchers with dread.
0: Lover in the ice, a bitter Midwestern winter shuts down a city and awakens a threat that is all too ready to spread.
1: Sweetness. Vandalism of a family home twigs Delta Green to mythos danger. Hourglass.
0: A woman vanishes screaming in front of dozens of witnesses in a small Oregon
1: town. Ex Oblivione. Crazed words scrawled at a crime scene hint at Yohannath Lai and the sea.
0: The Child. A traumatized child looks to the agents for protection from voices that never cease. Delta Green Black Sights is a
1: full-color, 208-page hardback.
0: Grab it now before it grabs you. It's time once more to enter the hut so mysterious it isn't a hut at all. It's just the corner of a former hut. We don't know who's taken that hut away. It may be aliens. It may be members of the uh, opposing political side uh, demonized to the extent that they seem to be actual monsters. This is just a, a corner where we try to figure out, you know, that what empirical reality is and then decide what we would like better than empirical reality that centers us at the middle of it. In other words, we're in the conspiracy corner. And this time around, sagacious patron backer Paul Douglas asks the obvious question, I think, was Lenin actually a mushroom? And if so, what kind? Was this a long-term plot by the fungi from Yuggoth? Ken, I think uh, both fungi and the uh, ability to uh, blag on a noted communist leader sounds like your department.
1: It does sound like my department, doesn't it? Well, to start with, let's just get one thing straight. Mushrooms are delicious and wonderful. Ergo, if Lenin was a mushroom, he was just as bad a mushroom as he was a person. Just (laughs) laying that out there. But the the question that uh, was asked uh, to us by Paul Douglas was first asked in uh, May of 1991 by a TV show on Leningrad's Channel 5. And if you remember May of 1991, there was still the Soviet Union. There was still the communist Party. there was still the you know state owned t v there was still everyone nodding along. This show was sort of a perestroika show called the Fifth Wheel and they would do investigative journalism exposing the sins of guys that were going to be purged anyway and they would do cultural affairs and and show you know cool stuff from the West that they were allowed to look at now uh so it was sort of a uh, hip 60 minutes if such a thing is possible. And it is only possible under communism. I point that out. So the, uh, show is hosted by a guy named Sergei Sholokov. And by May of 1991, the bureaucrat in charge of approving things was just, you know, probably insensibly drunk all the time. So Shalakov could basically do what he wanted. He could run the show for as long as he wanted, even. It was a beautiful moment of freedom when, you know, unfreedom is still in charge, but is too drunk to care. So that's, that's your moment. Once people actually get to decide what they want, then you're screwed again. But for right now, Shalakov is in the, is, is in the catbird seat. So he brings on. A character named Sergei Kuryokin, and Kuryokin is one of those guys who lives to mess with people. He's an actor. Uh, he began as a mu- musician. Uh, he had a, a, a band or experience space called Pop Mechanica. Uh, he was a provocateur. He would do wild, outrageous things. He was young and exciting and vibrant, and everyone wanted a piece of Kuryokin. So one assumes Kuryokin meets Shalakov, and he says, I've got... The idea for a show I'm gonna say that Lenin was a mushroom, and Shalakov says, let's do it and so the show opens it looks like it's a normal sort of a sciency show, and again, this is before basic cable is in russia they they don't have our experience with ancient alien documentaries; they're a simple, kindly folk, and so they're when you see people in a in a book line study nodding seriously, it must be real, and so everyone's watching along and uh Kuryokin says, uh, I noticed that Mexican revolutionary art from 1910 and Soviet revolutionary art from 1917 is the same art, that it's the same uh, immiserated peasants, they're using the same tools, they're looking in the same direction, they're fighting the same projected bad guy. What could explain this commonality? And before anyone could say the standard tenets of modernist progressivism, the answer is Mushrooms. Because Mexico, of course, is the land of psychedelic mushrooms. And it turns out Russia also has psychedelic mushrooms in its forests, specifically the fly agaric mushroom. And so this instinct sends Kuryokin through an hour-long tour of the career of Lenin. And the tour is backed up, and I want the air quotes to hang right here, backed up by ample photographic evidence. And again... Air quotes on evidence. It's actual photographs. They just don't show what Kuryokin claims they show, but they're going by fast enough that he's just telling you things. And then he stops to explain how mushrooms work for a while. And that seems sciencey. And so people are saying, well, that was science. So maybe he's right about Comrade Lenin. And uh, Kuryokin says, I, I read uh, a note in Lenin's correspondence with Stalin who says, yesterday I ate too many mushrooms, but I feel great which is evidence that Lennon is eating a lot of mushrooms. <laughs> then uh, he found a weird little round paperweight on Lennon's desk and said, it's weird how that weird little round paperweight is highly reminiscent of carpus in the condition in which its hallucinogenic qualities are manifested. So it's like, "Huh, oh, Lennon's got a mushroom, a psilocybic uh, paperweight. Look at that. And then he says, look at Lennon, look at this, a boy that's in all the pictures of Lennon. And he shows a bunch of pictures of Lennon. Some of them don't have a boy at all. Some of them have a little girl. Some of them have a different boy. But the point is,
0: there's no contrary opinion being raised at any point.
1: I mean, what's happening is the host is saying, oh, Really? Tell me more. Yeah.
0: So th- there's no one saying if Lennon was a mushroom, he would absolutely not have a mushroom-shaped paperweight because that would give away his mushroomness.
1: That would give away his... Deal. Well, Lennon was all about the the manifestation of, of what should be hidden. I mean, he, so was, he,
0: he was... He was hiding his fungal nature in, in plain in sight. In plain sight. Exactly. Okay.
1: It's a modified limited hangout. And uh, Kuryokin says the boy is Pasha, Lennon's uh, mushroom hunter. There's no Pasha. Never has been. But... When you say it in that tone, everyone's like, oh, that's who Pasha is. Now I know. Then they break away and they talk to a real scientist about mushrooms and tell us about hallucinogenic mushrooms. Okay. And uh, they don't ask the scientist about Lenin. but then they come back and then Kiryokhin says, as that scientist just explained, if you consume enough hallucinogenic mushrooms, it rewires your brain until your brain becomes organically a hallucinogenic mushroom. And this is what happened to Lenin." And that was the big... So he's a post-facto mushroom. Exactly. The big closer that they go out on. And it was a big deal. People still talk about it in Leningrad as the wild thing. I mean, it's, it's like the Max Headroom program hijacking times a million because it was official. It was on real state TV. And this is real state TV saying Lenin was a mushroom. They're not even saying Stalin was a mushroom, which you might have said, well, I guess it was about time that dear Stalin was, you know, put on the ash heap. No, this was Lenin. This was the foundational figure in the whole ideology. Uh, If if he's a mushroom, the whole thing collapses because mushrooms can't hold up a lot of weight. Basically, uh, this is an exercise in a form of late Soviet comedy called stiab, And stiab is where you ironically over-identify with what the state wants you to say. So if the state is saying, our tractors are the best, you come and you say, Look at this amazing tractor. It's a crazy good tractor. Look at all the greatness of this tractor. When people looking at it are like, that's just a normal tractor. What are you doing? But you can't be dinged for countering the party line because you're over-identifying with it. And so, the the closest we have in America was briefly in the career of Stephen Colbert when he was doing the Stephen Colbert show and pretending to be Tucker Carlson. And- he did that again by ironically over-identifying with a sort of a Tucker Carlson guy and doing that as a bit. Again, you know, it requires certain conditions of state media to work, but uh, those conditions obtained in the middle of uh, the 2000s uh, on both sides of the aisle, quite frankly. Right. So um, this is stiab at its you know finest at its most wonderful. And then and, and the thing about stiab is that it mutates further. Yeah.
0: Speaking about calling up things that you can't put down. And as the media becomes more Putin-like, it becomes progressively more insane and unmoored from reality in a way where you are both in on the joke and uh, the joke is being played on you. And, you know, it's one thing to have this one provocation that rattles people's reality, but essentially the media strategy later on becomes to have everything be a show where uh, Lenin was a mushroom, and that ushers in what the writer Peter Pomeratza says is postmodern authoritarianism, where instead of being told the only official party line, the way that Soviet state media did, suddenly there's just no line at all. You're just completely in crazy town, and the situation where you can't tell whether jokes are real whether jokes are really jokes or are a more, a stranger, more uh, warping form of propaganda suddenly erodes everything. And Poe's uh, law becomes us, a law of gravity. Yes. And so, and this is bringing us then into esoteric territory.
1: Right. And uh, the notion of using the form of a uh, scientific documentary to propound something ludicrous is again this was a form that had been well developed uh in American UFO movies before 1991 i don't think that you know Kuryokin invented it but he did it and at a famous time
0: spaghetti of, trees documentary that people right. fell for
1: yeah alternative 3 another classic example of of this which began as a parody and was then taken seriously in theory even by people who were parodying it um there's an argument that that's how holy blood holy grail started certainly it's how the dossier secrets that the Holy Blood, Holy Grail was based on started was uh by a, a French uh, surrealist named uh, Paul de Sade, who made up a bunch of nonsense about the Merovingians and then hid it all in libraries around the world so that when people researched the Merovingians, his nonsense suddenly looked real. And he did it as a surreal prank on his boss at the time, Pierre Plantard, who was in fact claimed, because he was a lunatic, lunatic, to be the last Merovingian. So, set does this as a prank on both Plantard and on French historians, and it turns into this giant cottage industry. The same thing happened with Alternative 3. There's a case that's somewhat similar to this, where there was a forger in England, and I think his name was Drewer, and he did garbage forgeries, but he did amazing provenance documents. So... He would say, "Oh, this is a terrible Matisse. It's a garb Matisse, but it's a Matisse. It's authentic. The documents are all real. And so museums all over the world hung this art saying, "Well, it's a lesser Matisse." And then someone would say, "That's not even a Matisse. it's not it's an acrylic paint for God's sake." And he, then then everyone's face was red because they didn't even bother to look at the content. Because they were only looking at the framing, and that's the same way that a bunch of stuff is sold and obviously uh when it's used to sell aliens or whatever, it's relatively harmless i mean it's not- nothing you know it's it's like alcohol, it's relatively harmless it is a brain killing poison, but it's a delightful one so so the exercise is is always this sort of channeling of the nonsense on the bed of the trusted and whether that is your trusted aunt on Facebook or your trusted commentator on a cable station or a trusted podcast, even we we smuggle the nonsense in by giving you the form factor. And that is, I think, sort of the, the large school thing that we take away from whether or not Lenin was a mushroom on the small right. scale. Of course, we say, well, Lennon wasn't a mushroom, but he certainly was a bad trip for everyone.
0: Right now. Some of the cases you've talked about, people literally then come to believe the conspiracy. This became a real conspiracy in that it became a model for postmodern authoritarianism, which certainly is a conspiracy and one that has uh, perhaps spreading. uh, And by perhaps I mean is. um, (laughs) And by
1: spreading, has spread. Has spread. But is there anyone who actually... Believes this? Well, Russia is a very large country, (laughs) like America, and so I suspect if you went around and you asked all hundred and eighty million or whatever it is Russians, you would have a an embarrassing number of people who believe it. Certainly, people at the time said they believed it, and then people later on would say, "Oh, I believed it at the time, but now I don't." But they say it in times where they're being interviewed by somebody who's saying, "You don't believe that, do you?" So I assume that you know this was a big deal. It was a big psychic event. In, you know, Leningrad TV history, anything that has left that big a mark, at some level, someone believed it. It it may be like the War of the Worlds, where it's more fun to believe that more people believed it than it did. But absolutely, people were skeeved out during the first 10 minutes of War of the Worlds, and some of them did stupid stuff. But it was not the nation-spanning panic that we all pretend it was, right? Right. I I feel like the same thing is true with this.
0: Now, one thing that this is... Also parodying it, in addition to Russian state television, is a book by a writer named John M. Allegro, who had a theory that people do believe, some people, uh, (laughs) and his book is called Sacred Mushroom in the Cross. It's from 1970. I thought we discussed it in some context, but the word mushroom doesn't pop up on a search, so I don't know whether we went into a whole episode on this or not. But that book, he uses linguistics, the best source of every argument, to argue (laughs) against the historical existence of Jesus. Instead, positing him as a collective psilocybin experience. And there's definitely people who give credence to that. So, the Lenin was a mushroom is also a parody of Jesus was a mushroom.
1: Right. Although, I mean, Sacred Mushroom sort of does the, what do I want to say, the, that on easy mode where they say there wasn't a Jesus, people just you know, got high and decided that they saw Jesus, which in fairness, it happens now. So why wouldn't it have happened in, you know, 30 AD? Um, they, they all got high and said, why is it AD all of a sudden? And I think that you can make arguments one way or the other that uh, maybe some aspects of the book of Revelation are someone describing a messed up mushroom trip. I feel like any sort of uh, the the line, uh, as I and I know we've talked about Terrence McKenna, the line between... A trip that means nothing and is just random neurons firing to a trip that means something to you because even though it's random neurons firing, it moves you out of your standard perceptions and lets you see something about yourself that was not true to a legitimate mystical experience to a legitimate divine experience. There is no way to know where the line is <laughs> in right. that. If you, if you admit the existence of the divine, the line, I mean, the line has to be there unless there's some, you know, uh, part of uh, Deuteronomy that I haven't read that says, oh, also don't get high. That won't help. And right. I'm pretty sure that's not in Deuteronomy. <laughs>
0: yeah, and, and also, though, with the Book of Revelations, uh, one must fund ruin. If you take a very specific political allegory written at a time where you no longer understand or bother to research any of the context of that very specific allegory, Mm -hmm. then it seems like a weird mushroom trip, but maybe it's a specific political allegory whose references you are, you're missing.
1: But again, I mean, you can have, you can see uh, people in the seventies absolutely saw Nixon on mushroom trips. So the line is not, (laughs) you know, as firm and beautiful as we would love it to be uh, when we drive. This is why it's just a conspiracy corner because we can't finish the whole hut. It keeps You know, coming apart in our hands. Exactly. Almost as though it were a psilocybin experience.
0: Right. So, speaking of not being able to finish things, though, Kyokin came to a bad end, or
1: did he? Yeah. He he died in uh, 1996 suddenly at the age of 42. He died of heart cancer, which was a thing that is immensely rare in the medical literature. And people made the joke that he died of an impossible ailment as his final prank on us. At some point between 91 and 96, we have talked about Eurasianist mystic uh, Alexander Dugan, who was a messed up cult authoritarian, uh, and Kuryokin moved him from Moscow to Leningrad to get him to run for local office in Leningrad and managed his campaign and did art shows and the whole nine yards made every evidence of being a full on Duganite. But also if you're looking at it, it's like, or is he messing with Dugan because Dugan's natural constituency was Moscow, not generally pro Western open-minded St. Petersburg. And uh, so he got electorally destroyed. So was that a deal? But when he did the prank, he of course did a prank because he was asking, what does everyone I know despise? The answer is Dugan. Therefore, that's the guy I'm going to identify with, because that's the only way to make the prank work. So he was always doing this stuff. So when he died, suddenly people, first of all, were mad at him over the Dugan thing. And second of all, they loved the irony of it because it's Russia. And so lots of people said, well, he was going to do a special on uh, on seances and the devil. Maybe he called up the devil and the devil took him home. Uh, maybe that's what happened. And then, of course, in 2005, a novelist, uh, one imagines, uh, thinking he's channeling Kuryokin writes a novel in which Kuryokin faked his death and is, uh, walking among us even now, uh, pulling ever more ridiculous postmodern authoritarian pranks and, uh, is, you know, sort of like the, the Elvis of messing with you. Right.
0: Or, or more specifically, the Andy Kaufman, right?
1: The Andy Kaufman. Exactly. Yeah. Andy Kaufman is another great American example. of of that sort of of prankery but kaufman you know did it in the high wire of doing it in a format that the you know the the rails weren't as clear right i mean american talk show reality while you know being relatively stultified in the 60s and uh, in the 70s and 80s is not soviet television stultified or even american cable television stultified now so it's it kaufman is sort of like you know uh the the best uh the best at stiab because he could do stiab even in conditions where stiab doesn't really work
0: right and and likewise died young and likewise had people saying was this a prank
1: right and uh, may possibly be out there with Kiryokin and Elvis uh, goofing on us all which would be the happy ending certainly which since it's the conspiracy corner we can pretend is true
0: well on that, I can't imagine a better image than that to uh, sneak out of this corner and therefore out of this podcast for another week. Stuff having once again been talked about, is time to thank our sponsors Atlas Games, Pelgrane Press, Ask for Arc Dream, Dark Tower, and Pro Fantasy Software.
1: Music, as always, is by James Simple. Audio editing by Rob Borges. Get your priority question asking access by supporting our Patreon at patreoncom backslash Ken and Robin.
0: Save this podcast from toxic red mushrooms by joining such sagacious backers as Josh Borlace, Ludovic Chabot, Monster Talk, Tristan Knight, and Roger. Edge. Gift your favorite co-listener with Ken and Robin merch at tpublic.com slash user slash Ken Robin.
1: With such cozy designs as, excuse me while I nap this out. On Twitter, he's at Kenneth Height. And he's at Robin D. Laws. See you next time
0: when, once again, we will talk about stuff.